Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlow. One March day in 1612, Roger Noel of Pendle Hill, Lancashire, was called upon by a complainant with a strange tale to tell. As a justice of the peace, an office created by Simon de Montford in 1285, his role was to decide what behaviours constituted illegal or merely obnoxious behaviour in the community. The complaint brought to him today was one being heard more and more in England, since a young king of Scotland got a promotion and brought some strange ideas south with him. By and large, these complaints come to naught, so Justice Noel could be excused if he had no idea the level of damage his meeting would soon unleash. The complainant was one John Law, an aged peddler from Halifax. On 21st of March, he'd been travelling through Trawden Forest when accosted by a young woman named Alison Devis. Devis, coming from a family of wise women, pagan folk healers. Law was wary of her, and when she stopped him to ask if he had pins for sale, Law became increasingly uptight. It was well known witches used pins and arcane rituals, like curing warts and casting love spells after all. Besides, it was well known the Divas clan were poor. She was returning home from a day of begging in the town, and metal pins were quite expensive. Why go to the bother of unloading his bag if a young lady didn't have any money? Because of this, Law stated it was hardly worth his bother to sell her any pins that day. Alison lost her temper, yelling something at Law. Law retaliated by calling Alison a thief. The two kept moving, till soon after, John Law keeled over, as if struck by a curse. The peddler got up and managed to stumble on till he reached the tavern. Now John was content to leave things be, but his son Abraham insisted that he go to the authorities and lay a complaint. Alison was brought over to the law household to see what she'd done to the peddler, for which she apologised. But for Abraham this still wasn't enough. Witches should not be allowed to simply curse whomever they please, not least of all Abraham's beloved father. Her Alison, her mother Elizabeth, and especially her grandmother, Elizabeth Sovens, known as Old Demdike, were well-known practitioners of maleficent practices and lifelong troublemakers. The complaint laid, Justice Noel called for a constable to bring Alison before him as soon as possible. Now before we get to Alison's trial, we should step back a little and discuss witchcraft itself. Now without getting too deeply into this, the concept of witches goes way back in antiquity. One of the earliest books to mention witches is the Old Testament of the Bible. 1 Samuel mentions Saul, king of the Israelites, approaching the witch of Endor to contact the deceased prophet Samuel. Saul needs to know what will happen in an upcoming battle with the Philistines. The witch told him not just Saul but his whole army would be destroyed. The prophecy proved correct. Elsewhere, in the book of Exodus, Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, and a handful of other advice, including Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Now from here on, the interrelation between witchcraft and the prevailing, increasingly Christian doctrines of society, well, it gets complex. Broadly speaking in ancient history, 
Witches were feared and occasionally used by powerful people as either an oracle of future events or to hex an enemy, often with deadly effect. Now, medieval society largely had the hang-ups and, dare I say this, of the church, some degree of common sense from the church to guide them. Most notably, St. Augustine of Hippo, 354-430 AD. St. Augustine saw witches as competitors for the hearts and minds of the people, but did not believe they had any supernatural powers. As such, he urged the church to treat them as heretics rather than dangerous monsters in league with the devil. This viewpoint was the dominant view of witches throughout most of the Middle Ages. A number of big-name monarchs followed suit. Charlemagne, a Frankish king who could very fairly crown himself, emperor of much of Europe in 880, stated, If anyone, deceived by the devil, shall believe, as is customary among pagans that any man or woman is a night witch and eats men, and on that account burn that person to death, he shall be executed. His call for tolerance and protection of witches was echoed by others. The canon Episcopi of 900 AD enshrined St. Augustine's views that witches were basically harmless. In 1080, after King Harold III of Denmark ordered a mass culling of witches, following a year of crop failures, Pope Gregory VII wrote a strongly worded letter to the king, demanding he stop the cull immediately. The Lombards of northern Italy outlawed the murder of witches. In 1100, King Kalman of Hungary expressly banned witch hunting in the country. His reason? Witches do not exist. But all this slowly changed in the late Middle Ages. In 1204, a marauding group of crusaders on their way down to retake Jerusalem got waylaid and wrecked their friends and allies, the Byzantine Empire at Constantinople. Their occupation of the city opened up a world of forgotten books, long banned by the church in Europe, but kept alive in Byzantine and Islamic circles. From the mid-14th century onwards, Renaissance occultism, centred largely around the writings of the semi-mythical magician Hermes Trismegistus and the Neoplatonists, suddenly become very in vogue with wealthy classes. The study of magic suddenly became popular, subversive, and just a little bit dangerous. Also at this time, sects of Cathars arrived in Europe from Bulgaria, providing a direct challenge to the Catholic Church. Though nominally Christian, they took on elements of Zoroastrianism, especially the view all of history is played out in front of a backdrop of a battle of the good powers versus the evil powers. They also adopted a degree of Manichaeism, a third century religion founded around a Persian holy man called Mani. They believed churches should not tax their flock, the men and women were equal and priests should live simple lives unencumbered by wealth. This was seen as dangerous and subversive by the church for reasons you may well guess, and the Cathars were soon murdered and driven out en masse. The widespread persecution of Cathars was an important building block towards the witch hunts. And of course there was much more religious turmoil in this time than I could shake a stick at. Some of it, like the Siege of Munster, we will probably come back to at some point. But there were also rulers like Philip the Fair, King of France, who used witchcraft allegations politically, 
Between 1304 and 1307, he first kidnapped a pope, justifying his actions by declaring the man a witch, then caused the arrest and destruction of the Knights Templar, effectively because he owed them a lot of money, but again justified because Philip said they were in league with the devil. Now the invention of the printing press, of course, also gave legs to all kinds of dangerous ideas. All manner of heretical thought gained popularity in this era. And while I'm choosing to skip much of this for now, one book in particular changed the game considerably. In 1486, a Dominican monk named Heinrich Kramer wrote a book called Malleus Maleficarum, The Hammer Against the Witches. The book compiled a growing list of conspiracy theories leveled against the witches, claims of human sacrifice, wild orgies, demonic familiars who could take on animal form, Kramer highlighted the many alleged tales of cruel behaviour aimed at their fellow humans. He explained witches were in league with the devil. They were granted supernatural powers, but in exchange, they were expected to wreak havoc on the ordinary public. Kramer's book shocked the book-reading public, and for some time was Europe's second bestseller behind the Bible. It kicked off a witch-hunting craze which ultimately led to hundreds of thousands of Europeans being executed in the most horrific of ways. But by and large, England never fell down that rabbit hole, at least not quite in the same way, and certainly not as early as medieval Europe. While it is unfair to say James I of England, 6th of Scotland, 1566 to 1625, was the first British king to go after witches. Kenneth MacAlpin, arguably Scotland's first king, was witch-mad. Henry Tudor also used witchcraft allegations for political purposes. It is very true to say the man was a true believer. In 1589, James, then King of Scotland, was betrothed to Anne of Denmark. The couple had been trying to get together for some time, but the rowdy North Sea had other plans. Claims of supernatural interference soon crept into the tale, when the Admiral, originally tasked to sail land to Scotland, accused the local politician of incompetence, and things took an odd turn. Admiral Peter Monk was put in charge of the fleet of 18 ships. They set sail on 18th September 1589, after a couple of odd incidents, like cannons firing by themselves, a bad storm set in, forcing the fleet, tempest-tossed, to seek shelter in Norway. Back in Scotland, James impatiently awaited Anne's arrival, penning a sonnet, a complaint against the contrary winds that hindered the Queen to come to Scotland from Denmark. It's hardly John Donne's valediction forbidding mourning, but it's, it's certainly a sonnet. While waiting, an advanced ferry which reached River Forth in Scotland before the storm set in was pummeled by the tail end of the storm, causing it to collide with another ship and drown all on board. On board, a courtier named Jane Kennedy. Jane had come to Scotland to serve the new queen. First James sent a group of diplomats to Denmark, then set sail himself directly to Anne. The party eventually made it back to Scotland, but were almost scuttled in the tempest, where one ship did actually sink. Back in Denmark, an investigation was held into the disastrous voyage. 
Emerald Monk pointed the finger at the Danish Minister of Finance, Christopher Valkendorf, who he stated had under-equipped the royal ship for the voyage. Valkendorf stated this was not the case. All the blame lay squarely at the feet of a coven of witches, who had met at the home of one Karen Vavers. At the time, a woman named Anne Coldings was already in prison, already charged with another unrelated case of witchcraft. Awaiting her execution, she was tortured into admitting her part in this plot. Anne then claimed a coven sent small devils up the keel of a royal ship, forcing them to take shelter. She also named five accomplices, one of whom was the wife of the then mayor of Elsinore. All up, thirteen women were burned at the stake for their alleged part in the storm. News of the Copenhagen witch trials reached King James back in Scotland. Shocked by their revelations, he set up his own tribunal. That tribunal found a vast conspiracy directly related to the storm in Scotland, an incident which came to be known as the North Berwick Witch Trials. This incident bred a lifelong preoccupation of witches for the king, which included his own treatise on witchcraft, Demonology, first published in 1597 and reprinted after he became King of England in 1603. A learned review of all that had been written on witches, demons, and more besides, the book was meant as a guide to both uncover witches and protect those who, in James's view, had been wrongly accused. Now, demonology would instead act as a guidebook for future witch hunters, the likes of Matthew Hopkins, who personally had 300 Britons executed. The treatise, whether rightly or wrongly, also became a guide to a number of public officials looking to win favour with the king and move on up the ladder. Now this is something we will discuss in part two. One clear example of a public figure pandering to the king's obsession comes by way of William Shakespeare. Shakespeare's The Tragedy of Macbeth may not have had its first public viewing till 1611, around the time of our tale, but it is believed its first performance was at court before the king in August 1606. The play is, in part, a vindication of King James's ascent to the English crown, and his ancestors' ascent to the Scottish crown. In Act 1, Scene 3, the three witches may greet Macbeth, all hail Macbeth that shall be king hereafter, but they also address his friend Banquo, a real-life ancestor of James. Thou shalt get kings where thou be none. Later in the play, when Macbeth approaches the witches, he's shown a succession of kings who are too like the spirit of Banquo. This procession of future kings, of whom Macbeth explains, what will the one stretch out to the crack of doom, the one bloodline, at one point holding twofold balls and triple scepters, indicating Banquo's successors, James and his kin were fated to become kings of a united kingdom all along. Also pertinent, many of the rituals we see of the witches themselves come directly from demonology. All the talk of scale of dragon, tooth of wolf, witch's mummy, moor and gulf corresponds to the treatise. And the witches also carry out a supernatural assault on a ship called the Tiger. In real life, the tiger was recently home, following a harrowing 569 days at sea. The real-life tiger, too, was tempest-tossed, and at one point set upon by pirates. 
The captain and several crew were murdered by Japanese pirates near Indonesia. It clearly harkens back to and reinforces James's experience of bringing Anne back to Scotland. Before we wrap up part one, I'll be back with part two in a week's time. We should quickly come back to Alison Davis, our protagonist. On 30th of March, Alison, her mother Elizabeth and brother James were all brought before Justice Roger Noel to answer John Law's accusation. Had Alison denied the charge, events may have played out very differently. Unfortunately for all involved, Alison herself was a true believer. Bursting into tears, she confessed to the hexing. She stated, following the altercation with the peddler, a demon in the form of a black dog suddenly appeared alongside her, asking, What should I do to him? What canst thou do to him, she replied. I can lame him. 300 yards down the road, John Law was seized by an apoplexy in the parlance of the day and tumbled to the ground as if struck by a lightning bolt. Thanks for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written by me, Simone Whitlow. Produced and all music, yours truly. Visit the blog, historyandimagination.com. Links to social media and liner notes. We have a Facebook and a Twitter, even a Pinterest. We also have a Patreon if you wish to help support the show and keep it going. If you have enjoyed the show, please leave a positive review. We'll be back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.